And if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. So we are preparing ourselves for Christmas. I'm sure many of you are preparing in very many different ways, but the main thing we need to prepare ourselves for is to have our hearts ready to adore Jesus Christ. Amen? You know, one of the things that's so popular right now are those ancestry and DNA kits. You ever done one of those before? For about 99 bucks, you can get a profile on your ancestry and also your genes. So for a swab of saliva or spitting in a tube, which is much harder than you think, by the way, you can find out if you're like 23% Irish or 42% Japanese. You can also find out some really interesting things about your genes or some of the the dispositions you have in your your genes. For instance, on a 23andMe, one of the results can be this. Get this. Your genetic muscle composition is common in elite power athletes. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? That's what I want. (laughs) Um, Here's some other things you can measure, too, if you take these tests. It can tell you if your hair has a greater likelihood of lightening with sun exposure That is, if you have hair, or (laughs) if you have slightly higher odds of disliking cilantro, or you have slightly higher than average odds of hating the sound of chewing. How many of you don't like that sound, by the way? Well, take the test and find out if your genes give you a predisposition towards that. I bring this all up by way of introduction because the passage we're going to look at today in Matthew 1 is actually a genealogy section. This is KingJesus's Ancestry.com. It really is. As much as we think this passage might be boring and not useful for us, I mean, we are obsessed with genealogy and genes and ancestry right now. So let's read Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. If you would stand for the reading of God's word, we're going to read about King Jesus's Ancestry.com and his family tree. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. How many sons did Judah have, do you know? I mean, how many sons did Jacob have, excuse me? Twelve, right? Verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, keep that in mind for later. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nation, Nation, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was who? Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Keep those tucked away as well. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, also known as Bathsheba. Verse 7, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, say that five times fast, uh, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Verse 10, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the what? 
the exile to Babylon. Keep that tucked away as well. Verse 12, after the exile to Babylon, we're almost there. Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matin. Matin, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were how many generations? 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David. That's the first set. 14 again in the second set, from David to the exile to Babylon. And then in the third set, 14 from the exile to the Messiah. All right, you may be seated. This is God's word for today. How many feel very inspired after that reading? (laughs) That's a warm and fuzzy passage, isn't it? How many of you are planning on reading this when you get together for your Christmas gatherings, you know? No, you probably look at Luke 2, which is very famous, or the one right after this with Joseph and Mary, but most of us don't read this passage at our Christmas gatherings. Most of us, if we're looking to be inspired, don't go automatically to Matthew 1, verse 1 in the genealogy section. But remember, all scripture, right, is inspired by God, including this one. So Matthew must have thought this is very important that he starts his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. So we're going to look at this section today, and I'm going to look at what are four ways, four ways that we can adore Jesus Christ through genealogy, okay? The first way, number one, is we adore Jesus because we learn that Jesus is uniquely qualified to be the Savior and the Lord that we need. We learn that Jesus Christ is uniquely qualified to be the Savior and the Lord that we need. How many of you have ever made a resume before or filled out a college scholarship application of some kind? Well, you know, when you make a resume, what kind of things do you put on there? Your experience, your work history, your skills, you know, your references. You're trying to make yourself stand out with your resume. I was looking up some resumes online of some of the most interesting resumes ever. And believe it or not, people put a lot of interesting things on resume. One guy put that he is proficient in the Star Trek language, language of Klanon or the Lord of the Rings language, Elvish. One person put on their resume, I have cat-like reflexes. Now you see me, meow, you don't. You get it? Another one put, emits pleasant aromas. Wow. Well, whether that gets you the job or not, what's going on here in Matthew chapter 1 is kind of like a resume. It's not a resume like we would put today, but back then, genealogy was everything. Who you were related to, what family you were a part of, mattered immensely. That was your credentials. That was your pedigree. That was your way of saying you were somebody, but was by whom you were related to. And remember, the book of Matthew, of all the four gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew is the gospel to what people group, do you know? To the Jews. And so as the Jews are reading this about Jesus' genealogy, they want to make sure that the Messiah that they've been waiting for for so many years is uniquely qualified, that he has the right family tree to really be the Messiah. And Matthew's saying, guess what? 
He does. Because there's two main characters in this list that Jesus is related to that really mattered to the Jews. Do you know who that is? What's one of them you think? Abraham. What's the other one? David. So let's think of those guys just for a second. Abraham and David. Way back in the book of Genesis, God made a big promise to Abraham that he would bless him and that through him all nations would be blessed. So it says in Genesis 22, in Genesis 22, verses 17 and 18, can you advance the slide there for me, please? Thank you. It says, I didn't have it memorized. It says, I, God, this is God talking to Abraham, I, God, will surely bless you, Abraham, and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your what? Offspring, Abraham, all nations on earth will be blessed. Now, this is a long time, hundreds of years before Matthew. But God made a promise that through him and his offspring that all the nations would be blessed. We, we kind of start to see that fulfilled in the Old Testament with Israel as they go in and take over the promised land and God uses them to be a blessing at times. But ultimately, this offspring that God is talking about is what character? It's Jesus. Because if you go to the New Testament, to Galatians now, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, this is Paul talking. He says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his what? His seed or offspring. Scripture does not say and to seeds. That's plural, meaning many people. But and to your seed or offspring, meaning one person, who is whom? Christ. And so Matthew is telling us by this genealogy that Jesus, he is that offspring that God promised about way back in the day in the book of Genesis. He is uniquely qualified in his family tree ancestry.com resume to be the Messiah. So we talked about Abraham. Who's the other guy we said to? David. So remember in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There are a lot of Old Testament passages that tell us that the Messiah would come in the line of King David. So for instance, last week in the book of Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called, let's say it together, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then in verse 7 together, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end, and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. We'll stop there for now. So the Jews had this expectation that Jesus would fulfill the line of Abraham and also the line of David. And Matthew is telling us, guess what? Jesus Christ, he is that one. He has the perfect resume. And even still, if you don't get it, at the end of Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, at the end of our section, if you would go there on screen real quick, Matthew 1, verse 17, talks about, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, why does that number 14 matter? Well, the Jews back then, their main language was Hebrew. And one thing the Jews did is they would take the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and assign a corresponding numeric value. They especially did this with the consonants. So each letter would stand for a number. Are you with me? And so the word David, 
Remember King David? David, if you take the consonants D, V, D in Hebrew, guess what number that equals when you add those together? 14. Isn't that interesting? A lot of biblical scholars have noticed that, that Matthew is even telling us by the way he arranged this genealogy that Jesus is the royal son of David. And then if you look at that genealogy one more time, starting at the very beginning and counting off from 1 to 14, who the fathers are, guess who the 14th name is in terms of the fathers on that list? It's King David. Matthew is uniquely telling us that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He has the right resume. And you may say, well, why does that matter to me? Because I'm not Jewish. I don't care. Well, two reasons why this matters. First of all, this means that we have a God who makes promises, and he also keeps his promises. Isn't that great news? We have a promise-making God and a promise-keeping God. But secondly, when you start to think about Abraham and David, as great as these characters were, they got nothing on Jesus. Abraham is known as the man of faith, but if you read Abraham's story of faith, his faith was up and down. He lied about his wife being his sister, which almost got her raped, basically. He took matters into his own hand, trying to fulfill God's promises by sleeping with his concubine, Hagar, which caused all sorts of issues. It was only towards the end of his life that he started showing the faith that he's commended for, really. But if you compare him to Jesus, I mean, Abraham struggled with his faith. Jesus never did. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's about to go to the cross, he still said, not my will, but whose will be done? Your will be done. Or think of King David, as great as King David is, he wrote a lot of the Psalms, he was a man after God's own heart, he committed adultery, and he also committed murder. Jesus Christ is the perfect king, he never did any of those things, he always stayed perfectly focused on his father, he was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. I mean, we have one unique Savior and Lord, don't we? <laughs> Let's go to the second way, so that was way number one, how do we adore Jesus through genealogy? Well, we learn that he's the uniquely qualified Messiah. Well, number two, we learn that God works out his plan, say it with me, in his timing. I don't like this one. <laughs> God works out his plan in his timing. So if you think about the promise of Jesus coming, we looked at Isaiah and we looked at Genesis. Jesus' coming was a long time anticipated. But you can go back even before David and Abraham and see back in Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned and God is pronouncing curses, this is where God is talking to the serpent, Satan. He says, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. <coughs> you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And then here's the incredible promise. I will put enmity or hostility between you, the serpent, and the woman. And between your, the serpent's offspring, and hers, he, that's the woman's offspring, will crush your, the serpent's head, and you, the serpent, will strike his heel. So right after Adam and Eve sinned, God is pronouncing judgment and consequences and curses, and yet he has this incredible promise. There's going to be conflict between the serpent's line and the woman's line. The serpent's line will strike the heel of the woman's offspring, and as Monty Python said, that's merely a flesh wound, right? It's not going not to ultimately hurt him. But the woman's offspring, who is Jesus, he's going to crush the serpent's head. What's that going to do to the serpent? It's going to kill him. So even back here, a long time ago in the garden, 
God is making a big promise that he will have a serpent head crushing offspring who is Jesus Christ. And then if you read the rest of the Bible in the Old Testament, it takes a long time to get there. Hundreds of years pass through ups and downs, through Abraham and the people of Israel in slavery, through the building of the temple and King Solomon, through exile, not just once, but a couple times. Through sin, God never desires sin in his people's lives, but it never surprises him. He works out his plan of bringing the Messiah here. Through all the peoples listed here in Matthew, God's plan was working out slowly but surely in his timing. Here's how one writer says it. You cannot judge God by your calendar. God may appear to be slow at times, but he never forgets his promises. He may seem to be working slowly or even to be forgetting his promises, but when his promises come true, and they will, they will always burst the banks of what you imagined. I mean, this is certainly true with Jesus coming. It was over thousands of years in anticipation. And yet when it finally happened, when the appointed time had come, Jesus Christ was born in a wonderful, unexpected way. He was born basically in a barn. That's not a place for kings, but that's where he was born. He was born to a poor family, not a rich family. And ultimately, his mission was not to get all the glory right now, but was to die and really give his father the glory, fulfilling his mission. I want you to think about your life for a second as you think about adoring Jesus. How many of you are being called to wait on God right now? How many of you have been crying out to God to do something and intervene right now, which is okay to do, by the way. It's okay to ask God to do big things. Talked about that last week. But sometimes God says, wait, doesn't he? Sometimes God says, keep trusting me. Keep looking to me. Keep waiting on me. King David said, I waited patiently for the Lord. I don't usually wait patiently. I wait aggressively for the Lord. I mean, I'm, but I need to wait patiently and be still. How many of you can say this morning that God is reminding you that you need to be patient in your waiting and trust him in his timing? Yes, you can keep crying out to him and persevering in prayer, but for how many this morning he's calling us to adore him through waiting? Let's go to the third way. We've looked at two so far. The third way, and this is probably my favorite way from the genealogy, <clears throat> the third way we adore Jesus is we learn the good news of Jesus Christ is available to how many people? All kinds of people. Let's say it together. We learn that the good news of Jesus Christ is available to all kinds of people. So remember I said a genealogy kind of functions like a, like a resume? How many of you guys have ever left something off a resume conveniently as you applied for a job? <laughs> Maybe it's something in your work history that you're not too proud of. Maybe you messed up, walked out, got angry. Maybe you didn't, maybe you got let go for whatever reason. Well, just like we do that, oftentimes in ancient genealogies, they would leave off some of their family that they didn't really like. <laughs> People that they weren't too proud of. But the amazing thing about Matthew is he does leave some off, but he includes all the crazy scandalous people and stories in this genealogy. For instance, one of the unusual things about his genealogy is he includes women in it. What you may say today, why does that matter? Well, back then, they were like second-class citizens in many ways. And did you count how many women Matthew includes in Jesus' genealogy? There are five women mentioned. So if you look at verse 3 in your text, Tamar's mentioned, and then in verse 5, Rahab and Ruth are mentioned. 
And then in verse 6, Uriah's wife, also known as Bathsheba, is mentioned. And then, of course, Mary, the mother of Jesus, in verse 16. So Matthew is telling us that women matter. Women are included in Jesus' line, and they are included in God's kingdom. Aren't you glad that's true? I mean, this is still a shock for some cultures today that women are included in the kingdom of God. Another thing that shocks us too is that the people mentioned in this genealogy, not all of them are Israelites. So verse 3 again, Tamar, she's a Canaanite, not an Israelite. Verse 5, Rahab, she was a Canaanite. And what was her occupation, by the way? Do you remember? She was a prostitute. Verse 5, Ruth is mentioned. She's a Moabite. So it's surprising that even non-Israelites are mentioned. This would not have been a thing that the Jews were looking for. But, but Matthew's telling us that Jesus' kingdom, his gospel, his good news, he came to save not just the Jewish people and the Israelites, but all people. And then another astonishing thing, I mean, it's almost like you're watching a Jerry Springer episode, if you remember that show in this genealogy, because in verse 2, Jacob is mentioned. Do you know what Jacob is known for in his past? Lying and deceiving. And yet through Jacob, who stole his brother Esau's birthright, the Messiah would come. Or in verse 3, it says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zamar, whose mother was Tamar. Do you know where the story of Judah and Tamar shows up in in our Bible? I encourage you to read it sometime. This really isn't a Christmas gathering story. Genesis 38. Because in that story, Tamar doesn't have any kids. She keeps getting married and not having any kids. And so she disguises herself as a prostitute. And her father-in-law, Judah, just so happens to be looking to sleep with a prostitute, sees Tamar disguised, his daughter-in-law, sleeps with her, and through them come Perez and Zerah. It's one of those stories you're like, I can't believe this is in the Bible. And yet through them, through that line, through that crazy, scandalous story, Jesus the Messiah is born. Or look at verse 5. Rahab is mentioned. We said that she's a prostitute, yet through her, she saves the spies and helps the Israelites out. And so one of the amazing things we see in this genealogy is that Jesus came for the Jacobs, for the Judas and the Tamars, the Rahabs. Jesus came for the least and the last and the lost. That's the kind of Savior we have. And to really make matters, I mean, right in our face, verse 6 says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, or Bathsheba. Do you know why Matthew calls her not by her name, but by Uriah's wife? Why do you think? It's because he wants us to remember what David did to Bathsheba and Uriah. Uriah was one of his mighty men, one of his inner circle, one of his really security detail who loved David, took care of David, protected David. And when Uriah was away on battle, David saw Bathsheba bathing, and he lusted after her and took her and committed adultery with her. And then he tried to cover it up by having Uriah killed in battle. And so Matthew's reminding us, hey, that same King David that we love, hey, remember that story too? Well, Jesus came through that as well. Jesus came for people like the Davids, like the Bathshebas and the Solomons who had a thousand wives. You know, what's amazing about this genealogy is it reminds us that all kinds of people can be restored to God. God can restore adulterers to himself. He can restore murderers to himself. 
He can restore those who've committed incest or any sexual sin. He restores prostitutes, thieves and liars, deceivers, idolaters, womanizers like Solomon. Everyone can be welcomed and forgiven in God's kingdom. And we learn that all through genealogy. But it's not just the last and the least that need him. It's also the guys who seem to have it all together most of the time. Like Abraham seems kind of like that way sometimes. Isaac, maybe to some degree. King David for a season and Solomon. Here's how Tim Keller says it in his book, Hidden Christmas. He says, there is no one then, not even the greatest human being like King David, who does not need the grace of Jesus Christ. And there is no one, not even the worst human being, who can fail to receive the grace of Jesus Christ if there is repentance, that's turning to God, and faith. So this third way that we adore Jesus is by realizing that all kinds of people are welcomed into God's kingdom. Let's go to the last way very briefly, then we'll take communion. The fourth way that we can adore Jesus is that we learn that Christmas is about what? Done, not do. Christmas is about what's been done, not about what you and I have to do. <clears throat> How many of you feel really busy right now in this season? How many? Can be honest. How many feel like you have a lot to do? I got to go to this gathering, get ready for this thing, buy this gift, do this event. I mean, Christmas feels crazy at times, doesn't it? Well, here's the good news that we learned from this list. Christmas is about what's already been done for us to God's glory. Not what we have to do, but what's been done because in this list is a lot of history that's happened culminating in Jesus Christ who did all the work that we need that we can't do, that failed to do, and that we receive not by works, but by faith. This list is reminding us that Christmas has been about what's been done, not what to do. I mentioned Tim Keller, his book, Hitting Christmas. He, he defines it as Christmas is about good news, not about good advice. Advice is about what you must do, but news is a report about what's already been done. Advice urges you to make something happen, while news urges you to recognize something has already happened, and all you have to do is respond to it. Advice says it's all up to you to act. you got to make it happen. But good news says somebody has already acted. Big difference, isn't there? If I come with you giving you advice, I expect you to act on it. But if I give you good news, I expect you to celebrate on it, receive it, trust it. And the amazing thing about this list is it reminds us of the gospel already that King Jesus has come. He's establishing his kingdom for the least, the last, and the lost, for the somebodies and the nobodies. Everybody can have Jesus as their Lord and Savior and Messiah. Amen? Well, I want to invite uh, Pastor Dathan Ford. I'm going to pray. We're going to be taking communion. We're going to adore Jesus now through the act of taking communion. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this genealogy list, or why we may wonder while it's in the Bible, it reminds us of the kind of God you are, the kind of Savior we have, that he loves people so much that he was willing to come through a very broken family tree to save the very people he came through. Father, I pray that right now, this Christmas season, if we're really busy, that you would cause us to slow down and be amazed at Jesus. I pray too that if there's someone here who hasn't yet given their life to Christ, Lord, that they would feel this tug and this pull today to surrender everything to King Jesus because he is the best Savior and Lord anybody could ask for. Father, I pray that right now in this moment, you would be honored and glorified as we take communion. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.